Our guest today is nicknamed the Tiger Shark King. Considering this is an apex predator, I can't wait to hear what Dr. Austin Gallagher has to say. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. This is Life's Tough, but explorers are tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have, and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Our guest today is Dr. Austin Gallagher, a marine biologist who was on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, which recognizes up-and-coming movers and shakers. He is a recognized shark expert by his peers, but also fans of Shark Week on Discovery. One of his nicknames is the Tiger Shark King. Welcome, Austin. Richard, thanks so much for having me. So I have to ask you about the uh, Forbes 30 under 30 list, because when I think of those kind of lists, I think of like Taylor Swift or you have to invent Snapchat. How did that come about? And, you know, (laughs) what was that experience like? Sure, sure. Yeah, that that happened in 2016. So, you know, almost six years ago now, and I was 30 years old, right when I got it. So it was, you know, the last kind of doors closing sort of thing kind of goes back to during my PhD days. And this was right after I finished my PhD, you know, I started developing a lot of entrepreneurial tendencies into my work and grew this, you know, at that point, grassroots NGO, Um, but had had a lot of success, you know, as an early stage researcher, 
and met a lot of entrepreneurs and realized that, you know, I love building things and I love the concept of business. And I, I knew about the Forbes 30 and 30 list. And oh, one day that'd be cool. Maybe, you know, who knows, super long shot, maybe I'll get on it. Um, but I actually never applied myself. One of my board members at the time, unbeknownst to me, you know, nominated me. <clears throat> uh, and then I got, you know, obviously asked to submit a full thing. And I, at that point, I was in touch with someone from Forbes from the science section. And, you know, there are moments in life where you want to be modest and there are moments in life where you, you don't want to be modest at all. And that was when I just opened the floodgates. That this is everything that I've done. And I said, let's give it a full effort here. And uh, yeah, luckily uh, I was able to you know, earn that nomination. And you no, know, it was very cool. I mean, awards don't, as you know, Richard, awards don't define who we are, but they do kind of export who you are to different audiences. So I think as my journey has continued, it's a cool thing to look back on. But Austin, as a young scientist in a very competitive field, which has a hierarchy, I can't think of a faster way to be hated than to make a list of which recognizes you above some of the sacred cows that you might have worked with in any sort of academic situation. For sure. You know, and that's, you know, it's been my story my whole career. You know, I mean, I obviously have many more fans than I do haters. There's always going to be a few out there for anybody that's doing something innovative or different or breaking boundaries or, you know, bringing new voices into a conversation that's been stale for so long. And um, yeah, I mean, I was kind of used to that, you know, we talked about this concept of sort of sometimes you can be a dartboard, but um, you know, I think right, right now in the field of science, I think, you know, especially marine biology, we're seeing huge interest in, acceptance of the fact that we need to bring business into the fold because even though business probably destroyed the natural world to the point where it is today we wouldn't be able to have this this podcast without technology and furthermore business is probably going to be key to saving the world and um yeah i mean there's obviously a bunch of those kingpins in science and every field has a couple of them and you know you know it's not it's never been a motivating factor to me to knock those kingpins off you know, that's not the goal. The goal is just do good work, be a good person and, and let everything kind of happen. You know, so I, I want to take you back a, a little <laughs> before you were the tiger shark king, because <laughs> there had to be a minnow who took his first steps in water. You grew up in the Boston area. And so for a lot of kids, I know in my case, um, geology and uh, the moon race were sort of the gateway science activities that got me really jazzed. How does one sort of go down the shark path? For me, I can remember, Richard, my parents always gave me a steady flow of books. There was just never enough books in my house. It's actually funny because my daughter is two years old, is obsessed with books. She doesn't want to start her day or end her day without reading books. She asks for it. So it's so cool to see how that's kind of been passed down somehow through the genetic code. But um, yeah, my parents were so great in giving me these books. And I remember looking at, you know, when I would couldn't really read and, you know, all that stuff, just seeing these monstrous animals and these really impressive things. I was just so amazed at how big these animals were that, you know, under the surface of the water, we couldn't see them, but there were these giants. And it was just so kind of humbling to me, a little bit scary, but I think that's what kind of drew me to it. And yeah, I grew up in Boston, you know, just having close access to the water. And I think the real catalyst for me was when I was 12 years old, I went on marine biology field trip to the Florida Keys. And I swam with a hammerhead shark, you know, from far away, but uh, it was like 20 feet below me. And, you know, that's just when the, the light bulb goes off to the nth degree and you realize this is, 
definitely the coolest thing ever. And um, it's always been a driving goal for me to get into sharks. They've been a great teacher to me. We could talk about that more perhaps, but you know, they've been really good to me. And I really, you know, owe them a lot. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, they, they're an amazing group of animals and um, just thrilling to be able to work on them. You know, you, you mentioned hammerhead sharks, and I remember um, snorkeling or skin diving in the Galapagos and seeing the same thing below me, schools of hammerhead sharks. I was with, uh, and in, in they look kind of menacing because, you know, they, they in the shark world, they are sort of an odd-shaped, um, you know, head, probably less so to you now. But one of the things that have always um, been uh, comforting to me, and I, I do handle a lot of wild animals that I'm not necessarily an expert in, but I'm so keyed in on my guides or local people for their behavior. There's gotta be a point for you now. That was great. You were probably with somebody, but do you remember the first time that you sort of went into a shark environment and now it's just you? Oh yeah, there've been a few. I believe that the, the moments that I've had kind of interspersed throughout my career so far where I have done those kind of intimate one-on-one -on -one experiences with sharks on their terms in the water. You know, they've been few and far between because I do spend a lot of my time behind a computer or traveling or whatever. <clears throat> totally life-changing. And I believe that my brain chemistry has honestly been changed and reprogrammed through those experiences. One in particular was uh, an interaction with 12 oceanic white tip sharks in the Bahamas in 2014. Final year of my PhD, I was out there just on a photo and video expedition. There's this one island in the middle of the Bahamas archipelago called Cat Island. And it is home to pretty much the only aggregation left in the world of this incredible open ocean wandering shark. This is the shark that purportedly inspired Jaws. The USS Indianapolis sank, you know, way back when, the, uh, you know, 50s, I think 40s, and a lot of those sailors were taken <clears throat> by oceanic white tips. Very bold animal, super curious. And this one experience, I was the only person in the water at the end of this trip snorkeling. And uh, I was completely engulfed and went from zero to 60 really quick. And, you know, I never felt like they were going to attack me or eat me. I mean, and they could, I'll be honest with you, Richard. Sharks are the most patient predators in the world. They could destroy us so fast but they don't. We go and dive with these animals, oceanic white tips, 12 of them. And I came out, you know, unscathed, a little stressed out, but you could never do that with lions or tigers, or you could never elk. I wouldn't walk into a, a group of 10 elk or 12 elk out in Yellowstone. That'd be a really stupid thing to do, especially in mating season. So there were these really patient predators. And I think that they've honed that over, you know, so many million years of evolution. Um, so that would probably be the most kind of thrilling experience I had. But, you know, you, you mentioned that it went from zero to 60 really fast. And I think what frightens so many people, including myself, I have been uh, out there with elks and I have been out there with rhinos and lions and, and so forth. I felt at least I was on a terrestrial base and I could see them. But it, it, it seems that the way sharks glide through the water, that suddenly you see nothing and then suddenly you see a lot. That whole moment of, of things happening at a speed that you're just not accustomed to from an observation standpoint. Certainly, yeah. Um, it's a different environment. You know, we don't belong there and you gotta play by their rules instead of being on land when we can kind of play a little bit by our rules. So yeah, you're definitely more vulnerable and you have to just realize that sharks are extremely elemental. 
And even though any wild animal can be unpredictable, sharks in general are very predictable. You can see how their behavior changes. You know how they're going to come up through the current. And uh, they're extremely cautious. That's the other thing, too, is once you've seen a shark, you can actually become the person or the, the, the individual that's in control of that relationship, that interaction, because a lot of these animals, particularly the bigger ones, are ambush predators and they make a living ambushing and killing and stalking their prey with the element of surprise. So, you know, I'm thinking of big tiger sharks. I'm actually about to go on a tiger shark uh, film expedition just tomorrow. And if you maintain eye contact with them, you kind of have the upper hand because, you know, their cover's been blown. They're still going to come in and check you out, but they just play by these ancient rules that they're not going to, you know, waste their energy and kind of attack you once you can already see them. Well, they, they, ha they have the reputation. Everybody talks about the steely, unemotional eyes of a shark. Now, I know that, you know, when you spend enough time with animals, you start recognizing behavioral patterns. I find a lot of these behavioral patterns tend to be a little localized. But are you saying that when you're in the water, you have some sort of eye recognition with sharks that you feel least you think you know what they're thinking? 100%. And it varies from certain species, but um, the true bigger apex predators, tigers, hammerheads, you know, the oceanic white tips, and even sometimes reef sharks, which, by the way, I, I'm most freaked out by reef sharks. The most common shark that, you know, anybody will see when they go diving in the Caribbean, uh, that's actually the one species that has bitten me, by the way. Um, I don't really, actually, I've never talked about that before ever on a podcast or anything. We, we can talk about it, but the only species that's ever been bitten me out of the thousands that I've seen interacted tagged, it's actually a Caribbean reef. All right, let me see um, all your fingers. Let me see fingers. I'm not yeah. going to ask you for toes. All right, they're all so, there. Where'd you get bitten? It was, it was actually a finger, and um, <clears throat> it was my, I think it's the pointer finger. This is my left pointer finger. I still have the scars. And if you actually look closely, you can see that there's a little bit of a divot right here on my left finger. Basically, what happened was I was filming uh, with the film crew last summer, and I was tagging this small little reef shark, literally something that I've done, no joke, probably three or 4,000 times. And, you know, we sometimes do use hooks to catch the animals, and we have this kind of safe method for the animals, and it's generally very safe for us, too. However, on this one, uh, I was, I noticed that the hook was loose right when we were able, about to cut the animal loose. We'd taken our data, we we're gonna cut the animal loose and obviously let it go back in the water. Shark was in the water on the side of the boat and the shark was loose, the hook was loose, Richard. So instead of using a long pair of bolt cutters, which is literally what we use to cut the hooks out, I said, well, this is loose. I can just jiggle it with my hand, no big deal. And I did that and the shark literally, talk about eyeballs, looked up at me, I saw it move its eye and it saw my finger right next to his mouth, totally my mistake, I shouldn't have done this, and it just clamped right down on my finger. Luckily, I pulled my hand out kind of in time, um, but it still did get me pretty good. Bled like a, a stuck pig. Um, I was on a, a, a research yacht for and filming yacht for a week, so I had to stay on the boat. It got me right on the knuckle, severed three tendons and a nerve, so I couldn't move it. However, the most important thing that we need to do, there was a medic on the boat, which was great, was to basically just make sure there was no infection. So the bite didn't hurt at all. Uh, obviously my adrenaline was pumping. However, what hurt more than anything I've ever experienced in my entire life was when the medic was cleaning out the wound right after and the subsequent days where he would literally, you know, he didn't want to get infected and he'd literally put bleach mixed with water into the wound, 
and then take a hose at full blast, one of those garden hoses when you switch it to full, not shower, full, and just shoved it right in there. And the pain was so intense just from my little finger that I felt like I was like meditating, you know, like those videos when you know, someone's meditating with a Buddhist monk and they come off the floor. <laughs> That's literally what I felt like. And, uh, you know, obviously a good story, but I did have to go back and get No, it's surgery. a great story, actually. I had to get surgery. Um, they had to knock me out and repair those tendons and nerves. And then I had like two and a half months of physical therapy just to, because it was completely, you know, I was in the cast for a month and I had to do all that PT. But, uh, you know, the, sh the funny thing about that story, just to conclude, is that <laughs> I've dove with so many of these animals all over the world and, you know, underwater, I've never been bitten by one. The one time that, you know, I have was when I was actually doing my science and it was my mistake. And it's something that, uh, I'll never make that mistake again. That's for sure. Yeah. But I mean, you, you've just hit on the complacency problem because, um, as I mentioned to you, I film a lot of animals I'm not familiar with. And what I typically do is I go onto something like YouTube and I'll put like alligator bite or lion bite or any of these things. And I always want to learn from other people's mistakes as not to repeat them myself. Um, and you know, as, as an explorer, I just feel like I've got to trade a little bit of a shark story, uh, razor in the, in the shark family. And I was in, uh, the Cayman islands when they typically feed these things and you know, they was, you know, put a little pit of fish in there and suddenly this ray, I feel like my hand is way further down its throat than I want. And I feel this cartilage, you know, sort of clamping down on my hand and I pulled it out, you know, again, a handful of blood, nothing really bad, but I thought, man, I'm going to be a little more uh, cautious on sticking my hand near a wild animal's mouth. Totally. Totally. Yeah. The, the, the crushing plates that those stingrays have are really powerful. That's why they call them crushing plates. Now you're, you're from the, the Boston area, which is just outside of Cape Cod. And uh, I go there a lot with my family and over the last couple of years, the great white shark population has, I, I want to say explode. And I, I remember going out on a, on a boat with a spotting plane. And in a two hour period, I think we saw something like 15 or 16 different great white shark. And so I guess my question is that with the thousands of people who do go swimming on the Cape and these great white sharks were all within a couple hundred yards of shore, it leads me to believe that they must be very aware of their environment and prey species because you really don't hear of people getting bitten or, I mean, maybe one every 50 years gets eaten there. That's right. Yeah. No, it's, again, comes back to our point of, you know, these animals being really in tune with their environment and patient. And uh, I love Cape Cod. I've been, you know, really fortunate to have a summer research program for our NGO up there. Uh, for the last four years. And I have done some work on white sharks with my colleagues. <clears throat> We're not doing the sort of large scale population studies that some of the other folks that there are, but we've definitely, you know, done some ecological work and certainly seen and observed. And I also have been in the awesome position as you Richard too, to do one of those spotter plane flights. And uh, I've seen, you know, same tons of them. So we have to just learn how to coexist with these animals. This is, an example of what happens when conservation works. White sharks have been protected in the United States and pretty much everywhere in the world, but in the United States since the early mid 1990s. <clears throat> so you have about three decades, three generations worth of white sharks now that have been protected from fishing. Before that, after the jaws craze, they were prosecuted like dragons. 
And your sharks are slow growing. So they take, you know, it will take a couple of decades for those offspring and those F1 and those F2 generations to kind of come to be. And now that's what we've seen. Now the white sharks have recovered. It's, you know, what an amazing success story. However, the human population is also growing. We love going to the beach in the summer. These seasonal places rely on tourism. And now we have interactions. There have been a couple of, you know, uh, attacks over the last five or six years, and there's been a fatality. Matter of fact, the fatality happened really close to my wife's uh, family's house in Truro on the beach. And, um, you know, folks up there, I think they're doing everything they can to try and translate the science into education and improve their safety as much as possible. But at the end of the day, this is a free country, which is an amazing thing. People are going to do what they want to do. And not everybody's going to follow. Not everybody wears a mask. If not everybody can wear a mask, how's everybody going to, you know, heed alerts to not go swimming where there are seals in the ocean? So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it, it probably will happen again. Not to be a pessimist, but um, it, they are super rare. And, you know, it just comes back to this idea of coexistence. Well, you know, I, I think it goes again. If you look at the statistics, it's a pretty rare occurrence. There's a town in Connecticut pretty close to me. Weathersfield, Connecticut, in a 10-year period, it was hit twice by meteorites. So, ha, you know, it, more people have been uh, threatened by a meteorite in, in that town than obviously people being eaten by coyotes or sharks. I mean, sure. I, th I think it's just, again, the primordial fear of, of drowning and being eaten at the same time. It probably triggers a response that's, I mean, it's not an illogical uh, response, but I, I guess the education portion becomes important. Definitely. Yeah. But, you know, it's, I think it's thrilling that we can go to the places that we've grown up and the places that we've always loved going to. And we can see, you know, this incredible healthy population with big mega predators cruising. I, to me, I think that's the coolest thing ever. You know, I, I always ask people in their work, what's sort of the aha moment like you go into shark research and, you know, you start with, you know, sort of a mindset one way. And then every once in a while, something happens that's not in the textbooks that you have to think, hmm, you know, is this, I'm, I'm the only person to observe this. Have you had aha moments with sharks where you think, wow, I just didn't expect this? Oh yeah, definitely. And we have one that I've been working on there have been several of those, Richard, but there's one that we're kind of working on now and getting ready to release that has really just kind of completely changed my mind and a lot of my colleagues' minds in terms of what these animals can do. And it kind of stems from the notion of, you know, as conservation biologists and as scientists, we're always pushing, same, people are always pushing the same agenda. We need to protect these animals because they're important. They're apex predators, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, we've heard a million times. It's true. You know, and I, I've said it a lot, you know, also they're worth a lot of money for scuba diving, not for fisheries, by the way, but uh, for scuba diving, shark fin industry is a whole different thing. We Let's not go into that. It's just, it's been done ad nauseum. However, you know, what the light bulb was for me was through our long-term research in the Bahamas. And we do research in other places, but I've done so much work there that it's where I've, I've had the most gains, you know, and comes back to the concept of tiger sharks. And we have equipped these animals with video cameras on their fins and these animals have served sort of as Sherpas, you know, carrying this technology temporarily and going to 
places. And you know, people have been putting cameras on animals forever. You think about Greg Marshall, National Geographic, you know, Critter Cam back in the you know, late 1980s, early 90s. But one of the things that we really kind of forget about is that animals are unbiased in their logic about what they do. They will take you and they will go to the most important habitats. They know what's up. Every decision they make is a life or death calculation, literally. And it's, is this going to help me? Is this going to improve my fitness? Is this going to help me survive and have more babies? That's really the logic in the shark's brain. So they go to the habitats that are most important. What we learned in the Bahamas is that these sharks will actually go to seagrass meadows, some of the densest meadows that we saw on camera. Oh my gosh, this is so incredible. And uh, we haven't published this paper. It's coming out soon, but we, you know, they keyed us into the fact that there could be a huge seagrass meadow in, in the Bahamas. So we ended up doing some remote sensing work with satellites and some of our colleagues, and we confirmed the presence of the world's largest seagrass meadow in the Bahamas. And it's probably one of the most significant pieces of marine vegetation on Earth. And because of climate change resilience, uh, the benefits that that carries, seagrass is a huge carbon sink. Sucks a lot of carbon out of the uh, atmosphere and holds it in the sediment forever. And these sharks led us into a pristine habitat. So that the light bulb for me, Richard, was that these animals, we need these animals much more than we need, that we, than we think we do. And, you know, we have to protect them like they are in the Bahamas in order to make those discoveries that can actually benefit humanity. You know, it, it, it's, it's a great thing that you are so capable of a science communicator, because I think that the you know, average person kind of figures everything on earth, we kind of know about it. And in the sea, they think, well, probably, but the fact that you can make such a huge discovery over an area that, you know, thousands of ships have obviously crossed, to me is kind of mind blowing. And the, just beyond the sharks, if it's a seagrass environment, that has to be an incredibly important, rich place for breeding of all sorts of other marine mammals. So, or animals in, in general. Turtles, yeah. No, you're absolutely, you can see this thing from space. And I have this incredible photo that uh, an astronaut took from the ISS in May, 2020. And I'll send it to you. Uh, I'm gonna get it framed. It's a beautiful shot of the Bahamas. You can see our seagrass meadow from space. So sometimes the best discoveries that we can make as a species are kind of under our nose the entire time. You know, and, uh, you know, I really think that this discovery is right up there with the Titanic. I really do. I think it's one of the most important discoveries that we have made in the last 20 years in our oceans. So we're obviously working very hard on finding the right way to communicate this to the world. And, you know, we still need to publish the paper. Um, but uh, it's just amazing, you know, what, what we still have the capability of learning. And I think it's sometimes important to just take yourself out of the human dominated view of what we are doing and realizing that the animals are not just our study animals or our subjects on camera, but they can be our collaborators and they can be our partners. And that's just such a cool realization. And it's very cool to think that the technology today is, is you mentioned critter cams. And I remember those early things were huge. They were expensive and not reliable. And it keeps getting smaller and lighter and and cheaper. And, and the integration of space to me, I almost feel like you, as 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 a young marine biologist, are going into a, a golden era of of really learning about creatures we only, you know, using the metaphor, knew the surface uh, about. Absolutely, yeah. We, you're right. You hit the nail on the head, and it's also something we're seeing in the deep sea. You know, another quick light bulb story is tiger sharks again. 
they led us into the deep sea over the last couple of years through these cameras. And we saw them going to depths and on these underwater walls and just mind blowing stuff. So then we started putting uh, landers, sinking these landers underwater. I actually worked with a, a colleague of mine who was trained from Ballard, Rob Ballard. And we engineered this custom solution to scale deep sea science and imaging in a much cheaper, easier way. And we put these cameras underwater at up to three, 4,000 feet you know, in these areas where these tiger sharks were going because we want to know why they were going there. And we've done this a lot over the last couple of years. And what we've seen is the first ever video of this species and the first time this species has been seen. And this is the deepest record. Every drop we're making history. Like we're going to make a t-shirt, Richard, that says with every drop we make history. And it sounds costly. Send me one. This is awesome. It's just factual. Every time we drop one of these, there's a new scientific insight that is gained. And uh, big ocean out there. So there's just so much to be done. That's so exciting. And Austin, we're, we're just about out of time. If people want to learn a little more about you, you have a, a foundation. Yes. Yep. We have a, a globally activated nonprofit research institute called Beneath the Waves. You can find us online at beneaththewaves.org. Instagram's where a lot of our stories are happening. That's at BT Waves. And, uh, you know, have an amazing team, uh, about 2025 20, scientists, communicators, entrepreneurs, you know, filmmakers who are all pushing towards healthy oceans. And sneak preview for, uh, you know, Discovery's Shark Week. What are you doing this year? Yeah, we, we've done some great stuff. We did a, a few shows down in uh, Turks and Caicos. So those are going to be awesome for this year's Shark Week. And then probably have one or two more shows uh, with some kind of bigger name celebrities. that will be shot in the Bahamas in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, it's just been a huge, huge year to become part of the Discovery Channel family and also with the Explorers Club, like an amazing partnership. And just, uh, I think, just the tip of the iceberg for being able to deliver like some of the best natural history and stories to people, you know, through new channels. I mean, you know, it's it, the only thing I can think of, Austin, is awesome. I mean, I, you have really um, got me excited about sort of looking beneath the ocean. And I think that your efforts as a scientist and a communicator are so important. So thank you for being a guest on Life's Tough Explorers or Tougher. It's my pleasure, Richard, and let's definitely go out on a research trip together, and uh, I'll show you some of these things up close. Uh, You got it. Thanks a lot. All right. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right. Get something to write with. Here are my coordinates www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.